While you have your hands together, there is a community that is joining us online, some missionaries that we've sent out and supported as well that catch our services online as well. Would you put your hands together and make a ton of noise for those that are joining us today online. We're so happy that you're here uh, with us. If this is your first time here at Nona, my name's Colin, and I serve as the lead pastor here, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to spend a little bit of your Sunday with us. We pray that today would be helpful for you, that you would find a place to get connected and know and take your next best step in following Jesus. Uh, today, uh, we're continuing on in a series that we've titled Tables, uh, but today I will not be giving the message, uh, but instead you're going to be hearing from uh, one of my mentors. Um, pastor John Hampton uh, has uh, known me for about over a decade, but over the last year or so has really stepped into the role of being an advisor, a friend, a mentor, and a confidant uh, in my my life, and I'm so thankful for him and his life and ministry. He's been married for over 39 years, has two incredible adult children, three grandkids, and one of the things that I really do appreciate about him is while he leads a very large church here in the city, Journey Church in Apopka, serving thousands of people uh, across the Central Florida area, one of the things that I'm most grateful to him for is the way that he leads with humility and kindness and grace. He really is a person who puts others in front of himself, and he is a model of what it looks like to run this race well. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, he is uh, going to complete 42 years this year of full-time vocational ministry, and at the end of this year, he is retiring from Journey, and in an era where people do not finish well, he is an example of what it looks like to finish well. 42 years of faithfulness, and today he's here to, to lead us and to guide us. Would you get up on your feet? Would you make a ton of noise? And would you welcome to the stage, Pastor John Hampton. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Colin. Uh, very kind, gracious words. And I've been looking forward to being here today at Nona Church for some time. And I'm just so grateful for Pastor Colin inviting me to share with you today. By the way, I, recently Pastor Colin and I played golf together. And i, I got to say something to you. Colin hit some drive so far they needed a passport. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, he hit one drive so long. I said, Colin, I didn't go that far on my last vacation. So uh, I enjoy spending time with him. And, and just in case you didn't know, I really love your pastor and his wife Stacy and their beautiful family. I've, I've told Colin if I could adopt a son in the gospel, it would be him. I'm, I'm so proud of him. And as a pastor, I respect and admire the work that God is doing through him. I've watched each message Pastor Colin has shared in this table series, and they have been outstanding. The scriptural explanations, the relevant illustrations, the practical applications, they're so good and so spot on. If you haven't seen any of those, uh, I encourage you to do that. I love preaching at a place where people are well-fed, and it is apparent that you are consistently well-fed here at Nona Church. Researchers uh, once surveyed some people about their favorite room in the house. Now, before I go any further today, I want you to turn to someone that you're comfortable sharing with and just tell them real quick, real quick, what's your favorite room in the house? Go ahead and tell them real quick. What is it? What's your favorite room in the house? And I'm going to give you the number one answer right now. The overall answer, number one, was the kitchen. Anybody say the kitchen? Several of you did. Most husbands' top answer was the bedroom. Want to guess the number one answer for young mothers of young children? 
the bathroom. And if you're a young mother, you know why. Because you can lock the door and keep everybody away from you, even if it's, for, if it's just for a few moments, right? We all long for a place where we are free from the demands of others and the pressure to perform. In biblical language, this is called a sanctuary, a space and a place to be alone with God. There's a unique kind of experience in the presence of God when we're gathered together in worship like this, but there's also a unique way in which we experience the presence of God when we are alone, when nobody else is around and God has our full attention. But truthfully, this is a hard thing for many of us. Many of us are so wired for activity that we get restless when we try to rest. In fact, for most of us, there's a tension that has been described as being versus doing. Being versus doing. Now, this is not a new tension. It's at least as old as the, this iconic meal story that's found in the gospel according to Luke chapter 10. So we're going to read this. It's right at the very end of Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. There's so much going on in this story below the surface. One obvious thing that would have stood out in that day and time was where Mary was sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Women didn't sit at a rabbi's feet. In first century Jewish culture, that was considered a men-only space. The fact that Martha says, tell her to help me, is perhaps her subtle way of reinforcing that traditional, albeit invisible, male-female boundary that Mary has scandalously crossed. Sort of like her way of saying, tell her to get back in the kitchen where she belongs. The fact that Jesus sides with Mary over Martha tells us the value that Jesus viewed women with. In fact, it is not an exaggeration to say that no male figure from ancient history did more to elevate the dignity and worth of women than our Lord Jesus. And he left behind a loving and learning community where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So there's that going on in this story don't miss that. But there's more. Some people have framed this story in such a way as to pit Mary the worshiper against Martha the worker. Martha was actively trying to feed everyone. A meal for a minimum of 16 people when you count Jesus, the 12 disciples, Mary, and Lazarus along with herself. That is a lot of stress. And in the process, Martha became resentful at her sister who was lounging around at Jesus' feet instead of helping her. Martha was hospitable but practical. She understood if you're going to get a dinner together for 16 people, somebody's got to go out there and hustle and do it. Sitting around at anybody's feet won't get the meal prepared and food on the table. And furthermore, 
let's never minimize the ministry of meals. Cooking for someone can be a tangible and edible form of love and service. I have to confess I have a a soft spot for Martha because my mom was a Martha. She was a cook for many people. She started out her cooking career in a hospital dietary department. Then she worked in the school cafeteria where I went to school. She ended up managing a small restaurant, doing catering on the side. I was always amazed at what my mom could do in the kitchen. She could take cold food from the refrigerator at one time, put hot food on the stove at another time, and make it all come out at the same time, and everybody sitting at her table had a good time. People drove from miles around to eat my mother's cooking. And I have to tell you, now that she's in a nursing home and daily losing her battle with dementia, I would give anything to eat one of those meals again. So I will never discount the ministry of making a meal Food matters. Food counts. And that's what you've been talking about in this table series. Many people who read this passage come away with this application. Be worshipful like Mary and resist working frenetically like Martha. That's a common and understandable application. But I think there's another way to look at this. Perhaps the issue with Martha was not with her busyness, but with her lack of inner attentiveness. As West African theologian Robert Sarah wrote, Jesus rebukes Martha not for being busy in the kitchen. After all, she did have to prepare a meal for no small amount of people, but for her inattentive interior attitude. Christ tenderly invites her to stop so as to return to her heart, the place of true welcome and the dwelling place of God's silent tenderness, from which she'd been led away by the activity to which she was devoting herself so noisily. You see, Martha is actively serving Jesus, but she's missing Jesus. Martha is actively serving Jesus, but she's missing him. Her life in this moment is defined by duty, by shoulds and have-tos and pressures and distractions. But her commitment to her duties has disconnected her from what sustains her devotion. And I think we can see that in the text, that, that Martha's problem goes way beyond her momentary busyness in the kitchen. Her life seems uncentered and fragmented. Now, you may be thinking, well, how can you say that? Well, let me tell you, one of the surest signs that your life is off-center is when you start telling Jesus what to do. Martha said to Jesus, tell her to help me. So there's that. And the other way we can see she wasn't centered is the way she handled the whole situation. I mean, she didn't tiptoe to the door and say, psst. Mary, Mary, can I get a hand here in the kitchen? No, she made a grandstand move. She went directly to Jesus. She didn't even address Mary. Mary was probably thinking, Martha, I'm right here. You can talk to me. But when you're feeling hurried and worried, you don't always make the best decisions. Right after Martha barked her orders to Jesus, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. And when Jesus uses your name twice, look out. Something significant is about to be shared. Then Jesus tenderly reveals and rebukes the frazzled state of Martha's inner world. You are worried and upset about many things. In other words, there's something more than plating up food for 16 people that's troubling Martha. Even if she'd taken the time to sit at Jesus' feet as Mary did, she probably would have been distracted 
and irritated. You see, this isn't just a domestic dust-up about meal preparation. This is a deep dive into Martha's inner world perspective. Mary, by contrast, sits at the feet of Jesus. She's listening to him. She's simply focusing on being with Jesus. She's enjoying communion with him. She's loving him. She's attentive. She's open. She's taking pleasure in his presence. She's engaged in a slowed-down spirituality that prioritizes being with Jesus over doing for Jesus. You see, Mary has one center of gravity, Jesus. And even if Mary had gotten up to help with the many household chores like Martha wanted, she probably would not have been worried or upset by the same preparations that distracted her sister. Why? Because she slowed down enough to focus on Jesus and to enter life with him. That was her better choice, Jesus said. Pete Scazzaro, whose writings are the primary source for much of the content that I'm presenting, says this. Too many followers of Jesus are chronically overextended and doing more for Jesus than their inner life can sustain. Let me say that again. Too many followers of Jesus are chronically overextended and doing more for Jesus than their inner life with him can sustain. They have too much to do and too little time, and they say a default yes to requests and opportunities without carefully discerning God's will, overloaded, overwhelmed, deplete, constitute normal for their lives. The story of Mary and Martha demonstrates this vitally important truth. The active life in the world for God can only properly flow from a deep inner life with God. When we integrate our doing for and our being with, our lives have a beauty, a harmony, and a clarity that makes the spiritual life both full and joyful. When we have sufficiently slowed down to be with God, our activity for God is marked by a deep, loving communion with God. And that's when Christ's life, more often than not, can flow through us to others. Pete Scazzaro says there's three statements that summarize this be before you do approach to life and to ministry. The first is this, you cannot give what you do not possess. You cannot give what you do not possess. Educator and activist Parker Palmer makes a compelling case that burnout, from his perspective, typically does not come about because we've given so much of ourselves that we've got nothing left to give. On the contrary, Palmer says it merely reveals the nothingness from which I was trying to give in the first place because you cannot give what you do not possess. Secondly, what you do is important, but who you are is even more important. As long as we remain enslaved to a culture of speed, superficiality, and distraction, we will not be the people God longs for us to be. And thirdly, the state you're in is the state you give to others. The state you're in is the state you give to others. Rich Velotis writes in his wonderful book, The Deeply Formed Life, the speed we live at does violence against our souls. The inner and outer distractions minimize the capacity for us to see God's activity around us and within us. And Velotis says he sometimes imagines a scenario in which someone is locked inside of a supermarket and they die of starvation. Can you imagine such a thing? You might say it's impossible. And yet in our spiritual lives, it happens all the time. Whether we know it or not, we're locked inside the supermarket of God's abundant life and love. It's so available to us, even so people are spiritually starving. But it doesn't have to be this way. God is committed to being with us. Every day, he moves toward us in love, reaching, seeking, and pleading with us to pay attention to him. The question is, are we willing to be 
with him. Pastor and best-selling author Mark Batterson made this convicting statement. He wrote, we all want to spend eternity with God. We just don't want to spend time with him. We all want to spend eternity with God. We just don't want to spend time with him. What does spending time with God look like? I want to be as practical and as transparent as I can be. So the first thing I want to say is this. Find your room. Find your room. You say, what are you you talking about, Pastor? Here's what Jesus said. When you pray, go into your room. Close the door. Pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, in Jesus' day, almost no homes had private bedrooms. Maybe the really wealthy did. The room he refers to here most likely would be a supply room where they kept food or tools or even a few small animals. That would be the only place where there might be a door. I mean, it was the humblest of rooms in the simplest of structures. So my question to you is, what's your room? Where do you spend time alone with God? I want to show you a couple pictures of my room, if you would, right now. You can see that uh, we have a, a pool with a enclosure over the pool and that's where I start almost every day every day I start there that's the view I look out over the pool and that's the chair I sat in and you can see a coffee cup there I call it coffee with the Lord and I just spend several minutes just drinking coffee now I have to tell you I have a miniature poodle named Puffy don't judge me I call him Puff Doggy And he likes to join my time with the Lord. He said, what do you do there? You know, I just just sit there. And sometimes God speaks to me in some very distinct ways, and I try to write them down. Sometimes he convicts me about my anger. Sometimes I weep. Sometimes I sing. But there's three things I always try to remember in that time. Number one, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide. Everything is laid bare before the eyes to whom we must give an account. Secondly, I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove to God. He's already proven everything I need to know to me. And thirdly, I have nothing to offer. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The, the, the next picture you see, or maybe it already came up, was of a kind of a, a brown leather chair. And that's where I sit and I, I get into the Word. I have some devotionals I like to read. My wife and I are reading through Tim Keller's writing about the Proverbs, anything Tim Keller writes, uh, I recommend that you do that. But that's, that's my room. There's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper who wrote, there's a similarity between the structure of each individual life and the structure of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was basically divided into three compartments. Take a look at this image. First of all, there was the outer court where everyone had access. Likewise, there's a public you. This is, you have an outer court, which is the you that you take to work and goes to school and shops and plays. This is your appearance. This is your image. Everyone sees this part of you. In the tabernacle, there was an inner chamber called the holy place. Not everyone had access to this area. In fact, most people were not allowed in. You too have a holy place, a place where you only allow certain people to enter, such as your family and your close friends. You decide who comes in and who doesn't. No one can force their way in. Someone may hold power over you vocationally or financially, but that alone does not grant them entrance 
Maybe someone wormed their way in, and you got to see a counselor or a therapist to get them out. But ultimately, everyone gets to decide who they allow in that inner chamber. But there's one more chamber. It's a very small, carefully guarded place deep inside. It was the most sacred place, and they had a beautiful name for it. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was entered only by the high priest, and the room was so small, there was just room for one person in God. This is the mystery and depth and amazing truth about you. Because whether you're young or old, whether you're a big man on campus or low man on the totem pole, you have one of these places inside you too. Only God is allowed in there. No other human being can come into your holy of holies. That's what it means to find your room. A novelist named Gabriel Garcia Marquez wrote, Everyone has three lives. You have a public life, you have a private life, and you have a secret life. And God wants access to all of them. But we're never going to grant, grant him access to any of them in the busy, noisy, hurried spaces where we spend so much of our life. So, find your room. Secondly, be still. I, I didn't like those two words when I was a little kid. My father said them to me often as I would wiggle and rustle and stir about when he preferred I wouldn't. But when God says those words to us, we hear it from another place. The psalmist said, be still and know that I'm God. Everybody read that with me. Let's read that loud together. Be still and know that I am God. Listen, there is something I can only know about God when I'm still. So for the next few seconds, here's what we're going to do. I want us just to be still and know that he's God. I'll, I'll, I'll time it for you. Don't need to punch it into your device. I just want you to sit here, whether you're at the Wycliffe campus or online. Try not to move. Take some slow, deep breaths. Maybe you want to close your eyes. But let's just be still for a few seconds. Be still and know that I am God. How easy it is to sing those words, how hard it is to put that into practice. Part of being still, just as we experienced, was silence. It's not a stretch to say our ability to be silent with someone is largely contingent on our level of intimacy or familiarity with that person. My wife and I, uh, Pastor Colin mentioned, have been married for over 39 years now. And we have learned to sit silently with each other and enjoy what one writer calls a bonding silence with each other. Now, there are times, I have to confess, when we unfortunately can experience the unbonding silence of the silent treatment, marked by passive aggressiveness or even anger, like the old story about a married couple driving down a country road for several miles. They didn't say a word to each other. An earlier discussion had led to an argument, and neither of them wanted to concede their position. So they were giving each other a big old dose of the silent treatment. As they drove past a barnyard full of mules and goats and pigs, the husband couldn't resist, and he sarcastically said, relatives of yours, dear? Why, yes, honey, the wife immediately replied, in-laws. I'm not talking about the silent treatment that leads to exchanges like that. 
I'm talking, to a, I'm talking about the quality of silence that we enjoy through moments of quiet, sitting alone on the couch or walking together. Couples that are just starting to date or even early in marriage, they feel a compulsion to fill every moment of silence with talking. When you're starting out, that's understandable because you're fascinated, you're infatuated with each other, you're in a season of discovery, and any kind of silence between the two of you might be taken as boredom or disinterest. But something changes over the years together. While we continue to discover parts about our life together, we now have the capacity to simply be with each other. Listen, the more familiar you are with someone, the easier it is to be silent in that person's presence. Which one could argue that our discomfort with being silent before the Lord just might reveal how unfamiliar we are with the Lord. Then, of course, in our time with Jesus, we pray. So many people tell me they struggle praying for more than a few seconds, let alone more than a few minutes. And they ask, Pastor, how can I get better at praying? Here's what you need to know above everything else concerning prayer. Prayer is not a technique to be mastered or a formula to memorize. It's a relationship to be entered. Prayer is not a technique to be mastered. It's not a formula to have to memorize, but it is a relationship that we enjoy. So many people are concerned with doing it right that they get frustrated in their attempts and they end up doing nothing at all. In prayer, we're constantly called to let go of our need to achieve mastery, master, mastery and perform perfectly. There is no such thing as being professionals at prayer. We're always beginners. There are instances... Honestly, when I spend time with God in silence and I can sense his love and his mercy, but there are other occasions when I feel I've just had a quiet time on the patio. But like with most of our closest relationships, even those ordinary moments, our shared presence is a gift. As followers of Jesus, we seek to pattern our lives around his priorities, and Jesus had no greater priority than prayer. Just want to quickly run through a few scriptures to show you Jesus' prayer life. Jesus prayed when his life was crowded and draining. As he began his public ministry, privacy became difficult. And the scripture says the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus prayed when he had important choices to make. When, it's, when it was time to select those who would be his closest companions, he sought guidance from the Father. One of those days, Jesus went out into the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 as apostles. Jesus prayed when he was sad or distressed. During Jesus' ministry, his cousin, John the Baptist, was arrested and eventually executed. Pastor Colin recently taught on that. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew privately to a solitary place to be alone with his father. Jesus prayed when he needed strength for his work. One morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon Peter came looking for him. Jesus said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. Jesus prayed when he was concerned about the people that he loved. When he was about to die, Jesus knew his disciples would fail. He told Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Jesus prayed when he faced an insurmountable problem. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. 
His disciples followed him. He said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond him, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, it's so easy for us to find ourselves feeling guilty when we read those descriptions of Jesus' practice of prayer. But guilt has never helped anyone pray more or better over the long haul. Instead, let's consider this question. Do you think Jesus prayed a lot because he wanted to pray or because he thought he should pray? Do you think Jesus prayed a lot because he wanted to pray or that he thought he should? I think Jesus wanted to pray. And I think for us to pray much or deeply, we need to move from what we think we should do to what we want to do. Prayer was not an energy drainer for Jesus. It was an energy giver and it can be for us. If we come to see God not only as our Father, but as our friend. You see, when I meet with a critic who wants to argue with me, I lose energy. When I meet with a, my best friend, I gain energy. God wants to meet with us as our friend. Haddon Robinson was a preacher and a teacher of preachers all over the world. And he shared a story I want to close with. Robinson wrote, when I was in seminary, a pastor from a Christian Reformed church in Chicago came to the campus. One evening, he told us the story of a mother and her son who were members of his church. The father died when the boy was young. This was back before television when folks spent evenings listening to the radio or reading books to one another. They both enjoyed listening to good music. In his early 20s, he met a young woman at their church. He fell in love with her. They decided to be married. Since housing was difficult to find, the mother said, you know, we have a two-story house. I can, I can make myself an apartment in the second story, and you and your bride live in the first story. She said, son, the only thing I ask is that we get a chance to spend some time together because I'm really going to miss the reading and the music. And the son said, mother, you can be sure that's important to me too couple married for a while life continued the son stopped by a couple times a week to spend time with his mom but as time went on life got busier and eventually days and weeks went by between visits the relationship was not what it had been his mother's birthday was coming up so the young man went bought a lovely dress brought it to her and said happy birthday mother she opened the package she looked at the dress and she said oh son thank you I, I, I really appreciate what you've done for me he said mother you don't like it she said, oh, yeah, it's my favorite color. Thank you. He said, Mother, I have the sales slip. They told me I can take it back. She said, no, it's a lovely dress. He said, Mom, you can't fool me. We've been together too long. What's wrong? The woman turned, and she opened her closet. She said, son, I have enough dresses in there to last me the rest of my life. I guess all I want to say is I don't want your dress. I want you. The gospel writer Mark describes Jesus' purpose behind calling his original disciples and why he calls us today. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. The first calling of Jesus to any would-be follower is to be before you do. I want you to bow your heads right now. Just bow your heads for just a moment. I want to tell you, nobody drifts into a life of deep discipleship. No one accidentally begins to follow Jesus. No one stumbles into a life of faithfulness. It starts one step at a time. 
it starts with spending time with him. I want you to know the choice to be before you do is a radical choice. You will encounter resistance both beyond and even within the church. The greatest opposition you will encounter will come from within yourself. Begin humbly. Be patient with yourself. Transformation takes time. And you need to be kind to yourself through the process. Relax in the rhythms of grace. Be still and silent before the Lord. You cannot fill a moving cup. Learn to wait on God. Anchor yourself in His love. But please, begin taking what Jesus said is the one needed next step to be before you do. And all God's people said,